Before I get in this morning, I want to just tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're finishing up the series called Advance. Uh, this will be the last sermon in that series. And in the series, a lot of what we've talked about are ways that we need to grow as people and things that we need to do to get better. And a lot of times in church, that's the kind of stuff you hear about, right? Things you need to do, things you need to stop doing, things you need to get better at. And that's all very important. Um, the Bible's filled with that kind of information. Some Christians, for some reason, don't ever want to hear anything about how they need to grow, how they need to change. Uh, even in some churches, you won't hear the word sin anymore because they just don't want to talk about that. You know, it almost has a negative connotation. But uh, so that a lot of that's been in this series and a lot of sermons you're going to hear like that. But they have to be balanced with and they have to be, I should say, founded in, rooted in the real message of the gospel, which is grace. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning because to finish up advance... There's one key thing I want you to keep in your mind. If you're going to advance, then you're going to have to get back up multiple times because you didn't advance and you didn't do well and you fell flat on your face. And this is where a lot of Christians miss it. It's not really about always going forward, going forward, going forward, going forward. It's about what happens when you do fall. How do you react? Okay. When you mess up, when you sin, when you get off track, when your prayer life struggles, when you haven't read your Bible, when you haven't been going to church for weeks, how do you react to that kind of failure and that kind of adversity? What do you do? Are you one of those people that go very you know, inward and you start to get very sullen and you start to feel very hard on yourself and you almost get depressed and now you don't, uh, why try because I can't do it anyway? You know, do you get angry and turn away from God? What, what do you do? when you fall flat on your face. And so this morning, I want to give you some information, all right? I want to give you some knowledge, and here's kind of how my thought process is working with this. There's a couple things that motivate us to serve God. One of those things is, is passion, or you could say love, and that, that's kind of over here in this category of, it has to do with a lot of feelings, basically how you feel, all right? If I feel very loving towards God, if I feel very passionate about His Word, if I feel passionate about worship, if I feel passionate about church, if I feel passionate about the lost, then I'm doing good and I'm on the right track. But how many of you know that passion, okay, and emotion is not the only thing that we have in our arsenal? Praise God for it. I mean, I, I love to be around passionate people. But passion is not the only thing I look to when trying to serve God. If, if all I looked to was passion, then when, at, you know, when my alarm clock goes off in the morning, I usually don't feel very passionate about getting up. I feel very passionate about staying in bed, rolling over, getting a few more, you know, hours or minutes of sleep. That's where the passion is, but we don't always follow passion or how we feel, right? You don't, you don't accomplish and do well in life by just following how you feel all the time. So what do you have in your arsenal when the passion is not there? Well, that's where knowledge comes in. Let, let me give you an example. If you've ever had this happen where, say, I've had this happen more than once, where, say, you're at your house and, you know, maybe you're in your pajamas and you just had a passion that day for doing nothing, just laying around the house and maybe you're watching some TV and you're eating cornflakes and you're just slobbing out. You know, you're not, you're not planning on doing anything that day. And then all of a sudden, uh, and, and like, and even if your wife came to you and was like, hey, could you do this? You're like, no, I'm slobbing out today. I'm not doing anything. I have no passion for doing it. I'm just, I just want to relax today. And there's just like nothing that could move you, right? Then all of a sudden this alarm or something goes off on your phone and you realize, oh, I had a meeting I forgot about. Then all of a sudden you jump up. You run to your room, you're dressed, your teeth are brushed, your hair is brushed, you're in the car, you're going down the road before you know it. Because of passion? No. Because knowledge came that you didn't have before. Like you, you forgot about, you were missing information, you were missing knowledge about this meeting you'd forgotten. And the passion wasn't there, nothing could move you, then all of a sudden a little piece of knowledge came and you jumped up and you, you ran and did everything you should have been doing all along because you got some information and you got some knowledge. So it, it, when you're in church, it's not all about one or the other. If you have all knowledge, right, co uh, 
a church that's just communicating all knowledge with no passion is probably going to be really dead, dry, you know, just going to go through it line by line, and you're going to be dozing off and falling asleep because it just there's no. It seems like man, a lot of great information, but there's no passion. If you have all passion, you're going to have a church that's very flaky, very rooted, not very rooted in the Word of God. They're always seeking a new feeling, new emotion, you know, new experience. But there's no there's no knowledge, there's no foundation, there's no root to carry you through those difficult times when they when the passion's not there. And, and Jesus talked about that when he talked about the different types of soil. He said there's no root, there's no grounding to them. But how many of you know you need both? That's one of the reasons I love worship. Worship is a very emotional, passionate experience, but it, combi- it, liter- it, it combines both. Because you've got the words that we're singing, which is the knowledge, which moves me. But then you've got the music, too, to go along with it. And so you've got the passion and the crescendos and all the parts. And then, you know, it drops and then it builds and then the drums come in. And it's, it's just, it's great. But it's taking the knowledge of things that are true and it's combining it with passion. And so it's just a, it's a powerful experience. It's God created it. Worship is amazing. Uh, some people... They're, I don't know what it is about, but they don't want to get passionate in worship. It's like they don't want to get moved at all. You know, they just want to stand there like this. And it's like somehow to show emotion is a sign of weakness. But that's what worship is. Worship is an emotional experience. So this morning, I'm not trying to get you emotional. I'm not trying to get you to have any passion. I want to get some knowledge to you this morning. I want to get some information to you. Both are good, but this morning, I, I want to get some knowledge and information to you that you're going to put in your tool belt and you're going to keep with you and you're going to look to it to be able to advance with God whenever you have fallen flat on your face and you you need to get back up but you don't have any passion to get back up. And when you don't have any motivation and you don't have any emotions that make you want to get back up, I want to give you some knowledge that can kick in and you can go, well, I may not feel like doing it but I know this. And if you know this, what we're going to talk about this morning, if you know and understand this, then it'll help you get back up on your feet. It'll help you get back up and continue doing what you need to do. Amen? So Christianity has some very high standards, if you weren't aware. Uh, Christianity, you know, if you read through the Bible, it's encouraging but there's going to be a lot of stuff you read that you're like, man, I'm not doing that. I'm falling short in that. Wow, I need to improve in that. What? I thought I was doing good in that. Jesus just slapped me around with that. Oh, my gosh, I need to relook at this whole thing. There's a lot of very high standards in Christianity. And, man, when you're hitting all the marks, it, it feels amazing, doesn't it? I mean, when you're, when you're just doing well and you're on track, it feels amazing. But none of us hit all the marks all the time. Okay, so just get that out of your head. There's not a person on this planet that hits all the marks all the time. And I don't care who the greatest Christian you ever think, include Paul the Apostle himself. If you were here on Wednesday night, we talked about some of his flaws a little bit. Paul the Apostle, short of Jesus, there's not a human being on the planet that hits all the marks all the time. Okay, no pastor, no leader, no one. Mother Teresa, okay, whoever you want to think about. They never hit all the marks all the time. This is why we needed a Savior. Do you understand that? This is why we had to have a Savior, because man was never going to do it. They were never going to hit the marks all the time, which is why it becomes imperative that you know how to get up when you don't hit the marks. Because let me tell you what Satan loves to do. He loves to set a trap for you, and then he tempts you into that trap. And he draws you into that trap. And then once you fall for the trap, now he's the one standing over you, pointing at you, going, you worthless son of a gun. How could you do that? You piece of junk. Are you really even saved? And he, so he drew you in. He, he's the one trapped you. And then when you're down, he kicks you. And he wants to condemn you. And he, make, he wants to make you feel like the worst piece of junk. But did you know that's not the gospel? That's not the story of Christianity. That's not how it works. Now, before we get into Scripture, which we're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning, I feel like I'm talking fast because i got so much to cover. I, you, we may have to do two sermons on this. But I want you to, first of all, think about it as a parent. Okay, and I, I want you to think about, if you are a parent, do you have rules 
in your house and why do you have rules in your house? Okay. I know we have two kids and my greatest joy is to see my kids succeed. I, I am not waiting and just sitting around watching, waiting for you to break one of my rules so I could just slap you across the head. I genuinely love you, and any rule that I have in my house is for your own good, right? I mean, any rule I have is for your safety and protection. I don't let you sleep late because I know what kind of human that's going to produce on the front. It's not because I'm some mean person that just on, even on Saturdays that I come in and go, hey, get out of bed. We don't let our kids sleep past a certain time. I don't care what day it is because I know what kind of human being that produces down the road, and that's what I'm after. Okay, we don't let our kids lie. We don't let our kids steal. When they were little, we didn't let our kids slap us. I don't like to be slapped, number one. But that's not really the reason. <laughs> Okay, I mean, yes, none of us like to be slapped. However, that's not good for you if I let you do that. And that's going to create something in you. And so this is why the Bible says if you don't discipline your children, you don't love them. God said that. I figure out a way to work in parenting almost every sermon because it's just so important. But it applies to life in so many ways. I don't let my kid, we didn't let our kids slap me in the face or yell at me or kick me or throw fists in their mouth. Not because I don't like it, which by the way, I don't. But that's not why. It's because it's not good for you. And sometimes I hear parents say, oh, well, it doesn't bother me. Guess what? It doesn't matter whether it bothers you. It's not about you. It's about, is it good for them? Oh, it doesn't bother me when they act like that. So it bothers all of us. But that's beside the point. Okay. <laughs> that's beside the point. The point is, it's not good for them. And it, the rules are there to shape them, help them. Rules are there for when you don't yet have the knowledge or the passion to know why you should do it. Okay, I make you do certain things because I love you, and I have certain rules that are there because I love you, and sometimes you don't have the knowledge or the passion or the good sense to know why it matters, so the rules are there to force you to do it even when you, you can't see it for yourself and you can't have the passion. Okay, this is every rule and law that God ever made is like that. It's, it's really out of his great, tremendous love for us. It's not so that he can sit up there and go, okay, I've got, you know, 600 things you need to do, and if you break one, I'm just ready to slap you. That's not God's mentality. Again, I would say think of it from your perspective as a parent, and I often ask myself and sometimes ask people, do you think that you are a better parent than God? In other words... If I'm patient with my kids when they break rules, okay, if I show mercy with my kids when they break rules, I'm not a better parent than God. I'm not more loving than God. I'm not more kind than God. I'm not more merciful than God. So if I, as a human being whose love is not perfect, who is sometimes irritable and not patient, can still be loving towards my kids, where does that leave God? You know, and God never told us to do anything that he doesn't do himself. So if God tells us to walk in love, forgive, pray for your enemies, how many know he's doing that? He, so this is who your God is. Why do, and this may even seem basic and it may seem simple, but let me tell you, I, I see Christians struggle with this all the time. They have a wrong mentality about who God is, how God's looking at them, how he sees their sin, how he sees their failures, and it causes people to not want to get back up when they fall. It's discouraging. You, you're trying to live the Christian life. You do good for some months, and you fall off the wagon, and you just you feel I'm the worst piece of dirt on the planet. And it's hard to serve God under those conditions. Matter of fact, it's hard to have a relationship with anybody under those conditions. It's hard to have a friendship under those conditions. Some of you grew up with parents like that. Some of you grew up with very, very hard parents and you could never do nothing right and it didn't matter how much you did it was always wrong it was always on your case until by the time you turned 18 you were like man I can't leave this place fast enough that's and so then that's our mentality of how God is but did you know that God is the most loving kind forgiving merciful being ever ever in existence God wants nothing for you 
but for you to live the life that he designed for you to live. He wants you to be successful. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be fulfilled. He wants you to be in a loving relationship with him. Okay? So he's not just waiting over us to, to smack us around. But you have to acknowledge and understand Satan's role in all of this. From the very beginning, please understand, when you go back to the garden, Okay, look, I'm going to take my time with this because I can already tell I'm not past my first couple sentences. We're just not even going to get to this, but I, we'll get to it. Go all the way back to the garden. Why did Satan get involved with Adam and Eve? Why did he get involved? I mean, why even get involved? Who cares? You got this thing with you and God. What about the humans? Well, it was never about the humans. It was always about alienating the humans from God. It was always about creating a breach in the relationship. Because Satan doesn't like humans? No, because Satan doesn't like God. Imagine somebody coming in your life and trying to alienate you from your children just because they hate you. And I can't get to you, and I can't hurt you because you're God, but the one thing I can do is I can cause your children to rebel against you. I can cause your children to hate you. I can cause your children to curse your name that was what the whole thing was about from the very beginning. So Satan is always trying to come and put a wedge between you and God. Always. That's, he works tirelessly for that. Now, when I say Satan, that's just a broad term for the kingdom of darkness. It's not like Satan is omnipresent and he can come in your life and work, you know, specifically with you. I just mean Satan, demons, the kingdom of darkness, sin. It's, it's always working to separate you and alienate you from God. One of the ways that he does this is by wrong thinking and wrong mentalities. And so that when you sin, Satan immediately goes to work. And he says, you are a worthless piece of junk. You probably are not even really saved. God is so mad at you. God is angry at you. You need to just run and go hide in a hole. You don't ever need to go back to church again. You need to just quit reading your Bible because you're the biggest hypocrite on the planet. He goes to work immediately. I'm just throwing out a few things that I know I've heard before in my own life <laughs> and that I've talked to a lot of Christians and heard, but whatever it is that he whispers in your ear that works, that gets you to stop going after God, stop going to church, give up on the Christian life, Satan immediately goes to work. Look at what it says in Revelations 12, 10. This is at the end of all things, and John is seeing a vision. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser, talking about Satan, <clears throat> the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Listen, this, Satan is not in hell, you know, just throwing a big party and everybody hanging out. He, he is very active in what he does. He is working day and night to accuse you before God and to accuse you to yourself. So that you live under constant condemnation, constant guilt, constant it's never enough syndrome, constant failure. Thinking on that, meditating on, always seeing your sin, always being conscious of your sin, your falling, your shortcomings, and never being conscious of your righteousness before God. The grace and the mercy and the goodness and the kindness of God. How powerful the cross was. How powerful the blood of Jesus is. Instead, you, you, you forget that and you think about, yeah, but look at me. I'm a dirty sinner and I fall and I, and, I, and I do this and I said this and I act and I shouldn't have done. Yeah, that's called being sin conscious, but many of us are not righteousness conscious. In other words, we don't, the knowledge of the cross and what happened on the cross and the work of the cross, we lose sight of that, but we can easily see our flaws and our shortcomings and all the ways that we're failing. But let me just, let me just tell you something. When you became a, a Christian and you put your faith in Christ, His righteousness was imparted to you as a gift. Let me say that again because this is one of those pieces of knowledge that you need to put in your tool belt and that you never need to forget. When you became a Christian, you are no longer standing before God on your own righteousness. You are now standing as someone who has had the righteousness of Christ imparted to you. So I don't now 
follow the Bible or follow the, the words of God or try to live a sinless, holy life in order to earn God's favor. This is the fine line between all of this. This is where you got to really understand and get this in your, your mind and get this in that tool belt that you have to carry around. I don't live holy. I don't stay away from sin in order to make God proud or to earn God's favor or to be right before God. That's not why I do it. Again, I want to go, we have a hard time understanding this, so I want to go back to the parenting. I don't want my kids doing that. Think about it. I don't want my kids doing something in order to earn my love or my approval on their life. A lot of times I will tell my kids when they're doing something big or important or they're getting ready to do something big in their life, I'll say, listen, let me explain something. Before you ever do this thing, I want you to know, Daddy loves you. I'm proud of you. I couldn't be more proud of you. You already have my approval. If you fail or if you succeed at this thing is irrelevant. I want you to succeed. It's irrelevant. You already have my approval. You already have my love. And you're not, you're not earning that today. None of us want our kids, if you're a good parent, none of us want our kids doing that. We don't want our kids trying to earn our love. Know why? Because our love is unconditional. What does that mean? It means there's no conditions attached to whether I love you or not. Mother, in other words, I love you when you are a total brat. And I gotta, I'm, you're getting on my nerves for weeks and months at a time. And I'm trying to work something out of you. I love you unconditionally, even when you're like that. I love you when you're going through your teenage years. Mm, mm. Somebody said amen. amen. <laughs> I love you unconditionally because why? I'm a good parent, and I don't compare to God. Do you understand? That's very dysfunctional, and many of us had a dysfunctional relationship with our parents growing up. It's very dysfunctional that, oh, I got to do this, and if I don't do it, God's mad, and God's not proud of me. If my kids were walking around like that, I'd be embarrassed. If my kids were walking around with their head low like this, and, oh, man, I messed up, and Daddy's not proud of me, and Daddy's mad at me, and blah, 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 I, I would be embarrassed. Because that would mean I am shaming them. I am guilting them constantly. That's not how I want you to walk around. I want you to walk around believing, wait a minute, you're my son. Do you understand? You're my daughter. You're my child. And I love you unconditionally. And every time you mess up, I don't go in the kitchen and put a lock on the fridge and go, well, guess what? You can't eat now. Till you get this straight, you ain't eating. And sleep on the porch tonight. Because that bed, that's mine too. You don't get to sleep in that. I've never done that. Do I discipline my kids? Yes, absolutely. Not for me, for them. I discipline my kids for them. And God does the same thing. So the question then becomes, <clears throat> when you walk around and you feel guilt and you feel condemnation and you feel bad about yourself and you feel depressed and you feel low as a human being, where's that coming from? This is such an important question. Where is that coming from? And if you don't have this knowledge, then Satan's tricks and Satan's strategies will work on you. Did you know that God does not bring guilt upon you as a Christian? Do you know why? Because he brought it upon his son. Christ already bore your guilt. I know that this is why it takes faith to believe this. Christ does not bring, does not bring guilt in condemnation. I'll tell you what the Holy Spirit does do in our life. The Holy Spirit brings something called conviction, but there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. See, I hope my kids are convicted when they do something wrong, even without me being there and even without me being around because I've taught them right and I've instilled values in there in them. And if they go to do something, I hope they feel conviction. But if they make a mistake and they do it anyway, I don't want them to feel condemnation. You see, there's a difference. Let me show you, let me show you this about the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction comes in from the Holy Spirit like a, uh, like a coach or a good parent or a mentor comes in and says, Hey, you need to think about this before you do it. You don't need to do that. You need to think about it. You remember how God came to Cain in the very beginning? He came to Cain. He was thinking about murdering his brother. And he came to Cain. And he said, you need to be careful because sin is crouching at the door. 
And if you and if and its desire is to destroy you, but you need to rule over it. That's conviction. That's conviction coming in and saying, "Hey, you don't need to do this." Okay, when you're, well, I'm not going to start naming y'all sins, but when you're getting ready to do something, or you're thinking about doing something, or you're being tempted, or you're falling into old patterns, yes, as a child of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is going to activate. They go, you know, not to do this. You do not need to do this. This is not good for you. This is not who you are. This is not the path you want to go down. The conviction is there. Okay, and then even when you, if you sin, you may still feel that conviction. Hey, you shouldn't have done that. That's not good for you. You know that's not good. And he'll lead you, that conviction will lead you to repentance. Let me show you what condemnation does. Condemnation is even after you've repented, even after you've asked God for forgiveness, condemnation will be there. It's like a cloud. That's not from God. Because the Bible is very clear that when we ask God for forgiveness, that our sins are wiped away. But condemnation doesn't care about you. Condemnation doesn't, is not coming as conviction does to try to help you avoid it. Actually, condemnation from the enemy will try to drive you to it. And then once you do it, then I'm going to beat you over the head with it. And I'm never going to let you forget it. And I'm going to bring it up every chance that I get. I don't care if you repeat, repented of it. I don't care if you've turned. I'm going to remind you of it constantly. Things that happened 20 years ago, I'm going to remind you of it over and over. And I'm going to never let you forget it. And every chance I have, I'm going to beat you over the head with it like a two-by-four. That's how condemnation works. So that's why we've got to understand, no, there's a big difference between conviction from the Holy Spirit and condemnation from Satan. One quick way you can know whether it's conviction or condemnation is, have I repented of this and asked God for forgiveness and turned away from it? If you have, the condemnation that you're experiencing is not from God. Because when you repent and you've turned from it, he washes you. He cleanses you. The Bible says he removes the sins from you as far as the east is from the west. So, praise God for conviction. I thank God for conviction. Conviction is like if you touch your finger on a hot stove, you feel something. And the Bible actually talks about that you can become so hardened through repeated sin and ignoring that conviction over and over and over and over again that you can become seared in your conscience where you don't even experience conviction anymore, meaning you can, you can sin all you want and you don't even feel bad about it. You're like a psychopath in that area. You don't even feel conviction anymore. That's because your conscience is so seared and you, through repeated disobedience and repeated rebellion and repeated you know, ignoring the Holy Spirit that you don't even feel conviction anymore. So I praise God for conviction. I thank God for conviction because as long as I'm feeling conviction, that means God cares about me. God loves me. God's, God's correcting me as a good father. Praise God for conviction. When I, feel when I would be scared is if I can sin and I don't feel anything in here. That's when I would be getting nervous. Because if I can sin, something that I have knowledge of is sin, but in here I really don't feel bad about it. It, ain't nothing, it don't bother me. Now I have a problem because I can't even feel conviction from the Holy Spirit anymore. But what Satan loves to do, he's like a bad you know, spouse that just every chance they get, they bring up something that you did 10 years ago, and they just over and over and over and over again. And, you know, if you are married and maybe you do that or you have some, make sure you understand you're, you're teaming up with the strategies of Satan when you do that. It's Satan that does that. Constantly bringing up condemnation, constantly bringing up old things that you did and things that you, way you treated me and things you said and constantly bringing that up. If at all possible in, in my marriage and relationships, I try not to bring up past things. Let's keep it in the here and now. Let's talk about issues. Let's deal with things. I don't want to bring up old, well, you remember that time you did this? If you have to ever start a phrase with, remember that time you did this, you might should zip it right after that. That's a strategy of Satan, right? He, that's how he operates. That's how he works all the time. So Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, Satan has a few names in Scripture, but this is one of the names that, that, that God gave him is he is the accuser. And make no mistake about it, he lives night and day to accuse you before God. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. You're not saved enough. You're not Christian enough. You don't pray enough. You don't read the Bible enough. You don't love enough. 
I wonder if you're even saved at all. This is where he wants to take you, constantly accusing you of those things. Did you know that if you had a really bad past and God forgave you of that and now you're a new creature in Christ, you have zero reason to be ashamed of what you did before you were saved. I mean, I I talk to Christians all the time that are burdened down and condemned and ashamed of their past. And I always ask the same question. I go, was that pre or post salvation? Well, that happened before I got saved. Well, then what are you talking about? I mean, why, why would you feel bad about something you did before you got saved, before you got born again? You go, well, I knew it was wrong. Yeah, because the world has knowledge of, of sin too, I understand. But see, that was your old man. That was your old creation. You became a new creation in Christ. Have you, have you done that? Are you living that way now after salvation? Well, no. Then why would you let Satan come and beat you up constantly over something that happened before you were even saved? You're just letting him do what he loves to do, which is to alienate you from your heavenly Father that loves you and has forgiven you and has mercy for you. Don't let Satan do that. See, we, the Bible says that we have to know the strategies of Satan, and we've got to know his tools, and we've got to know his weapons, and we've got to know how he works. Now listen, if you're a Christian in here, and you're sinning, and you know you have sin in your life, and, and, and you, you're going to go home this afternoon, and you're going to participate in your sin, and you're going to just keep that going. That's not what we're talking about. This is not talking about Christians that when you go to sin, you feel convicted, and you're like, oh, no, I bind you, devil, in Jesus' name. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Okay? I'm talking about people that are trying to follow God, but, yes, they still fall short. And when they do, they hate it, and they turn from it, and they repent. That's what we're talking about here. Part of this comes from, see, in our Bibles, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for a lot of Christians, there is a a misunderstanding about the difference between the two. And and there's a few ways that you can, that I kind of say it or identify it. One way is you have a law mentality versus a grace mentality. The Old Testament is a law mentality. You were under the law. Everything was about the law. It was 613 commandments of things you had to do, things you had to follow, and all of these laws. And then in the New Testament, the Bible says that we're not under the law. See, the New Testament says you're not under the law, but you're under grace. And some of us have a very strong law mentality, but we don't understand the grace mentality of the New Testament. So I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about that. Another way of saying it is the law mentality is a merit-based mentality. It's a merit system. The New Testament is the free gift mentality. (laughs) So you have merit-based, which means you earn it, right? You do uh, X, Y, Z, and you get this. It's merit-based. Accomplish these three things, and you achieve this. Uh, Fail in these three ways, and you get this consequence, right? It's merit-based. The New Testament is free gift-based. Totally different. It's a totally different system. The free gift system, the Bible, we just read it for the offering this morning. It says we're not saved by works. Okay, that's the law mentality. We're not saved by works. He says, no, salvation is a free gift, meaning what? It's not given based on merit. Okay, when you go to a birthday party and you bring a gift to someone and you give it to them, there's no strings attached. Right? You didn't do it because of anything they did. It's just that it's a gift. And you would be offended if they were like, well, man, can I pay you back for that? Like, dude, it's your birthday. It's a gift. Okay, just chill. You don't have to do anything for me. I'm not expecting anything back. We understand it's a free gift, and so we take the gift. We take the gift at Christmas. We take it at birthday. We take the the gift. But when you go to work, when you go to your job, that's merit-based. You go to your job, and they give you your paycheck at the end of the week. You don't go, and they, you know, if if your employer came to you and they said, hey, man, I got a gift for you, and they give you your paycheck, you'd be like, what? I worked for that. That's not a gift, okay? I earned that. I worked my tail off for that. No, man, it's a gift. I just want to give you this. It's a blessing. No, 
I earned that. You owe me that. Okay, that's the mentality. Those are the two systems. In the Old Testament, it was merit-based. The law was a merit-based system. Do this and you'll get blessing. Don't do this and you will get cursing. Deuteronomy 28 laid it out. This was the covenant God had with them. He said, look, if you do these things, and he laid it out. Okay? You know, Ten Commandments are part of that. The old Levitical law is part of that. If you follow my ways, he went through it very carefully. If you're careful to obey, you follow my ways. You do the things I tell you to do. He said, you'll be blessed coming in and going out. You'll be the head and not the tail. He lays the whole thing out. Based on what? If you follow these things. Guess what? They never followed them, so they never got the blessing. They failed horribly at the merit-based system. It did not work. They couldn't do any of the things that God wanted them to do, so they failed miserably over and over. So they never got... Matter of fact, they lost the promised land. They were kicked out of the promised land. They lost everything. At the end of Deuteronomy 28, he says, but if you fail to obey all of these statutes and laws that I'm laying out, he says, then the curse of the law will come upon you. And he begins to name some of the curses, and it's not good. It's a very merit-based system. Do good, you get blessing. Do bad, you get cursing. Do you have the understanding? Do you realize that in the New Testament, that system was abolished? That system was abolished. That is not how it works with God anymore. Our salvation and our right standing with God is not based on that merit-based system, which is why Paul said we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. When he said we've been redeemed from the curse of the law, we're going to read that passage in just a minute. When he said you've been redeemed from the curse of the law, what he is, he's, not, he's referring specifically to Deuteronomy 28. He's saying the curse that came upon your life for not obeying, he said it doesn't work like that anymore. You've been redeemed from that by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you a few points about the law. Okay, When I talk about the law, I'm talking about all 613 commandments that are given in the Old Testament. Of course, a lot of people know the Ten Commandments, but that was just scratching the surface. There were 613 commandments. Um, everything from how to, you know, sew your clothes to how to treat your neighbor to what foods to eat to how to, you know, judge and court pro- court proceedings and it, it just covered everything. And this is the first thing that you need to know about the law. The law was perfect. The law is not bad. The law is perfect. The law is God's perfect design for how human beings, nations, communities, worship should work. It's God's perfect will for how things be done. The law is not bad. People are bad. And this is the first distinction you have to make and understand in this conversation. The law is perfect. God's law is perfect. It's the humans that have the problem because of their sin nature, they could never follow the law. And, and here's the thing. Even when a human being thought that they were following the law, they just became self-righteous. And then they used it as a way to, to proclaim their superiority over other people who weren't. So then, even when if they thought they were doing it, they just used it to sin. Because of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. And Jesus showed in the New Testament, even if you think you're following the law, you haven't even started scratching the issue of your heart and your thoughts. He said, you're doing all the outward things right, but you didn't even scratch the surface of your, of your heart and your mind. He said, so even if it looks like you're doing the law on the outside, your heart is still ugly. You're doing it for all the wrong motives and reasons, and you haven't even begun to deal with your thought process and all the evil thoughts that go on in your mind. So the law is perfect, but human beings are completely and wholly inadequate to following and accomplishing the law. Now, God knew this in the beginning. And so through the whole Bible, you begin to get an understanding of then why did he give the law? What was the purpose of the law? If he knew we weren't going to follow it, if he knew we couldn't follow it, why did he give us the law. Well, let's read some scripture. We're going to start in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. And New Living Translation, I'm going to read this out of today. 
So Paul's been talking about the law, and then this question kind of comes up. Well, then is the law bad? I mean, if, if that's the case, is the law bad? And so he answers it in verse 7. He says, well, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. So there we get the first reason for the law. We find out that we were so sinful and we were so in the dark that we could have never actually even recognized the sin in our own life without the law showing us this is sin. See, we take that for granted. But have you ever been, uh, have you ever been driving down the, the, the road and a police officer pull you over and he says, uh, you know, sir, did you know that the speed limit is X, Y, and Z? And you go, well, no, I didn't know that. Why? Well, because you didn't know the law. You weren't, you weren't aware. And most of the time what you get told is, well, ignorance of the law is not an excuse for not following the law. If you're going to get on the road, it's your job to know, so you should have figured it out. And where do you get it? Well, there's, you know, manuals, there's internet, you can figure it out. Same thing with, with hunting. You know, if you go and you, you kill something out of season, like, well, I didn't know it wasn't that season. Well, it's your job to figure it out if you're going to go do it. So ignorance of the law does not excuse you. And so this is why God was saying, this is why God gave us the law, is so that, in fact, we would know what is and is not sin. It's amazing if you look around the world, how many governments follow the law of God, even though they might be godless. That's amazing to me. Communist nation, doesn't matter what nation you live in, nobody wants anybody stealing. Nobody wants anybody murdering. They follow the laws of God, but not realizing that it was God who gave us this law in the beginning. So the first purpose of God's law is to reveal the sin in your life. Now, he doesn't leave you there, praise God. But before you can repent of anything, before you can even see your need for a Savior, you first have to get a clear picture of yourself. And this is where, quite honestly, a lot of churches miss it. In preaching the gospel, a lot of, uh, I'll say a lot of Christians miss it in preaching the gospel. We don't start here. We skip how sinful you are before God. We skip the fact that there's a judgment day where without the cross, you're going to be answering for every one of those sins. And see, it's the law that shows us that. I've even heard people say, before, because the gospel is not uh, presented correctly sometimes, I've heard people say, forgiveness, what do I need forgiveness for? I haven't done anything. Well, see, you're totally ignorant of God's law. If I begin to open God's law and go down 613 commandments and go, wait a minute, have you ever lied? Well, I mean, yeah. Okay. And I just started going down the list of all the ways you broke God's commandment. Before the time was over, you'd be going, oh my God, okay, I see where and if I, especially if I helped you see you're going to answer for every one of these things, God has a, a record book. Y'all, if y'all were here last week, you saw Frank's record book, a little piece of garlic. You're going to answer before God for all of those things. And so the law begins to bring knowledge of sin. And Paul explains this in the New Testament. But when you read the law, you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that God doesn't want me doing this and this and this, and I'm supposed to do this, this, and this, and... Man, this was the penalty for that. It's like, wait a minute, what? Somebody got stoned for working on the Sabbath, for picking up sticks? Oh, my God. You begin to read those things, and you go, man, this is serious. Especially when I read in the New Testament that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God never changes. Well, if God never changes and he still feels that way about this, he may not execute judgment the way that he did, and there's a reason for that. But does it mean that God still doesn't like that sin and he doesn't like it when humans do that? Yes. Yes, it does. The law hasn't gone anywhere. Please understand that. This is a whole other topic. The law has not gone anywhere because God's law is perfect and it didn't need to go anywhere. God's law is perfect. The only thing that changed is now how we are made right with God. It's not by following that law. That law still serves a purpose. Okay, that, The law of God, reading the Old Testament, which, by the way, three, 75% of your Bible is Old Testament. So when people are like, oh, I only read the New Testament, well, you're skipping 75% of the book. 
And when God laid it out, how many of you think he knew what he was doing? He put 75% of it Old Testament. So it serves a huge purpose. And we shouldn't read the law and go, oh, well, I, I don't have to do any of that anymore. No, there's still a lot in the law that applies to us. The difference, though, is that's not how we are made right with God. So let's keep reading. He says, well, am I suggesting the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. What does it mean to covet? It means to desire your neighbor's stuff. I look at your car and I go, that car's nicer than mine. I, man, I really want that car. I look at my neighbor's house. And I go, man, I really like that house. My house is small. I, I really wish I had their house. He says that's wrong. Now, the reason it's wrong, we get into that, a lot of reasons for that. But really, it's wrong because of where it can lead. Like in the situation of Cain and Abel. I mean, just about every war began with coveting. <laughs> man, they have more property than I have. <laughs> they have more natural resources than we do. Man, sure would like their stuff. So you can see where coveting could lead. So he said, I would have not known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. And this is what I want you to see. Look at this. But sin used the commandment or used the law to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have had that power. In other words, he said, before I was just you know, doing things. And then when I got the law, you're not supposed to do that. Now that's all I could think about. You ever had that happen? Kids are bad about that. You know, you tell them, now listen, I'm going out. I'm go me and mom are leaving the house. Don't touch this. Now that's going to be all this on their mind the whole time you're going. And they're going to be fighting that the whole time. Okay. Uh, no, I'm not supposed to touch that. So, this, he's explaining this is the sinful world that we live in. This is a part of the sinful nature. I'm sorry it's that way, but it's broken. The moment God says, don't do this, something in you is going to go, now that's all I want to do. So he said, sin used the commandment. It twisted the commandment. Satan used the commandment. He twisted the commandment to go... Now I'm going to use that to constantly tempt you and to draw you towards it and get you thinking about it, get you meditating on it. And now the moment you do it, I'm going to slap you over the head with it and make you feel bad and condemn that you did it. This is the strategy. Verse 9, at one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Any of you ever felt like that? Man, I know what's right, but I'm having trouble doing it. And it seems like even if I know what's right, then for some reason that's drawing me to do the wrong thing. Especially before you were saved, and that's what he's talking about here. Verse 11, sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. Why? Because we live in a sinful, broke world and Satan is tireless and he's always working. So he'll take something perfect like the law of God and use it for sin in your life. So sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. See, the law was very effective at showing you your condition, but it was unable to change your condition. All the law could do was like a mirror. It could show you that you had sleep in your eyes and your hair wasn't brushed and your beard was un, you know, trimmed. It could show you your condition, but the mirror has no power to change your condition. And that's what the law was. It was just a giant mirror for humanity to say, look at yourself. Before the law, before the mirror, we're just walking around and everything's in a mess. And everybody, we know there's, you know there's issues and problems, but you don't know the extent of it until you look in the mirror. And you go, oh, I'm getting old. Oh, put on a few pounds. You, know, you look in the mirror and you get, what do you get? You get reality. You look in the mirror and you get a revelation of truth that you didn't have before. Before you were living in deception, you didn't really know how bad it was. 
Then you look in the mirror and you see it and you go, whoo, man. And that's what the law did. The law is not effective at changing your condition. All the law can do is show you your condition. Praise God he didn't leave us there because that's a very depressing place to be, right? That's a very depressing place to be, to look in the law and see your shortcomings and see your faults. But he didn't leave us there, praise God. Romans 8, 1. This is one of those little tool belts, uh, tool pieces that I want you to put in your tool belt. Romans 8, 1, New Living Translation. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. This is a simple statement that you need to put in your tool belt and you need to pull it out often. You say, when you're feeling one way, you pull out truth. When you're feeling condemned and you're feeling beat down, you're feeling worthless, you pull out truth. You say, wait a minute, I'm feeling this way, but I know something else. And what I know is that the Bible tells me there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. What does that word condemnation mean? It means you are not condemned. It literally means you are innocent. The opposite of condemnation is innocence. So another way of saying it is there is no guilt, so therefore there should be no guilty feeling attached to it. No, he said there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus and because you belong to him the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature again not because the law or anything wrong with the law the law was unable to save us because of our sin problem because of our corrupt nature all it did it took something good and used it in an evil way I love this. So God did what the law could not do. The law had no ability to change your character. Even though you could see the law written out. Oh, I'm not supposed to be doing that. Man, I'm a terrible person. Yeah, but it had no power to change who you are. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have... And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Amen. So, there's a lot in that passage we could dissect and look at this morning, but main thing I want you to see is that the law... uh, is unable, the Old Testament law is unable to change you. In other words, you can read what's wrong and see what God hates. That in and of itself can't change you. You need a supernatural transformation on the inside of you. That's called being born again. That's called salvation. So the purpose of the law, again, to show us our sin, thus our need for a Savior... And also remember this, the law is summed up in two commands. Jesus summed it up in the New Testament. All 613 commandments have to do with one of these two issues, love God, love people. So even though it's a lot to cover, it all had to do with loving God and how to love God, loving people, how to love people. You know, it gives examples like if, you're, if your enemy is uh, if your enemy's ox gets out of his field and you see it in the road, he says, you are not allowed to walk by with a blind eye. He said, you go help your enemy get his ox back in his field. He said, if you loan money to to a a friend or family member, he says, you're not allowed to charge interest. There's all kinds of little laws in there. And what does it all have to do with? It has to do with how do you love people well. How do you love God well? So the whole law is summed up in two commands. Love God, love people. But then the law, you know, gives you the particulars and the details of that. Now, there is a cyclical relationship between the gospel and law. Meaning this. If you hang out in the law long enough... 
it'll lead you to the gospel. Because as you look at the law and you read the law, you realize your deficiencies and your sin and your inability to do it, which leads you to the gospel. And you go, I couldn't do it. Jesus did it for me. His blood paid for my sin and all the problems that I have. So if you, if you, when you, that's why the Bible has 75% of it is in the Old Testament under the law. Because when you read the law, it makes you realize, I can never do that. And so you realize the gospel and you realize the need for a Savior. And then when you spend time in the gospel, it'll lead you back to the law. But it'll lead you from a different frame of mind. See, when you come to the law out of gospel thinking, in other words, gospel thinking is, my debt's been paid. My sins have been forgiven. I'm righteous before God. My eternity is secure in heaven. When you come from that gospel mindset to the law, now you see the law not as a way to merit salvation. You see the law from a standpoint of, man, this God that I serve, that I love, that gave everything for me, this is what he likes and this is what he wants. Well, I'm gonna, that's how I'm going to live. I'm going to do that because I love him and I, and I want to bring joy and pleasure to his heart. But, but if you come to the gospel from under the law, you know, with a law mentality, then you're burdened down. But if you come to the law from a gospel mindset, you go, man, I've been saved, delivered, set free, holy, righteous, forgiven, going to heaven, son of God, adopted into his family, like this is the gospel mentality. Then I come and I read the Old Testament and I go, wow, God cares about, about little birds and, and how you take their eggs out of the nest and when you serve you know, milk to this animal and God cares about that. Well, that... That gives me insight and understanding into who God is. And from a saved, born-again, gospel, stand, firm foundation, I can live out the law, live out the commands, live holy as an act of, of worship and, and devotion to my Savior, but not for my salvation. See, that's a big, that's a huge difference. When you understand the gospel then you are free to live out the commands of the law from a totally different standpoint. And make no mistake about it. Don't think that the New Testament has no law in it. <laughs> this is where people miss it a lot. One, one person actually took time to count every commandment in the New Testament. They came up with 1,050. So the Old Testament had 613, but New Testament had 1,050 commands. Yeah, still, you get in there. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't bear false witness. Love your, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husband. On and on. Yeah, there's a thousand plus commands in the New Testament too. But it comes from a totally different mindset. It's not do these things to earn your salvation. It's do these things so that you can love God and love people well. But you're saved and you're on your way to heaven and you're forgiven but these are the things that I, this is how, you know, church, life, marriage, those things are supposed to work. And this is how they work well. So follow these rules. Okay, last scripture I'm going to read this morning. And I got a bunch more, but we're going to just, we'll let this be the last one for this morning. I kind of quoted this one to you earlier. This is Galatians 3.10. See, we, we must learn the value of truth over feelings. And one day you may feel saved, you may feel holy, you may feel righteous, and on another day you may not feel saved, you may not feel righteous, you may not feel holy. And so then the question is, does, my, does the reality change as my feelings go up and down, or is there a constant that is a fact and a truth that my feelings don't change. And in Galatians 3.10, this is why I'm talking to you about this this morning, because I want you to get this revelation in your mind and in your heart that I am righteous before God. That is a fact and that is a truth, and my feelings don't change that. See, all of this talk about the law is because I wanted you to see the process that God went through to bring salvation through Jesus was because no one could follow the law. 
That was never going to happen. No one's ever been made right with God by their works. Even in the Old Testament, they weren't made right with God by their works. The reason that God had to institute the sacrificial system of the blood and and the lamb and the goats and the calves and all that is because they they were not following the law. And that was a temporary solution that was pointing forward to Jesus until Jesus could come. So, no one's ever been made right with God by their works. I mean, even Abraham, who was righteous in God's, he was made righteous by faith. It wasn't, it wasn't made righteous by works. So, I'm telling you that because as a Christian, when you walk around and you fall short, your mind can immediately go to, well, yeah, I, I messed up, so you know, I don't even know if I'm saved or these types of things. And I want you to get away from that. Those, that's, that's your feelings. That's how the enemy works. Satan comes and he accuses you and your feelings feel a certain way. But I want you to have this truth in your belt that you can pull out and go, wait a minute, that's how I feel. That's what Satan is saying. But I am righteous before God. Because I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. I've been transformed. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And I am not trying to earn my salvation through following the law. Should you follow the law? Yes. That's a whole other sermon. But I want to get your mindset right about it first. Last scripture, Galatians 3.10. Paul was so clear about this. Look at this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. He's talking to New Testament Christians. He says, even as a New Testament believer, it is crucial that you do not slip back into this mindset of relying on works of the law for your salvation. All who rely on works of the law for their salvation are under a curse. This is why so many denominations that err this way are very dangerous. Teaching people you got to do this and act this way, you know, in order to be saved and do so many things and pray so many prayers and do, that's not helpful. And Paul fought against that. He said, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, uh, 613 commandments. He said, if you fall short in one, it's as if you've broke the whole law and you are now under judgment and condemnation. And think about it. It makes sense. Think about it with natural laws. You break one law, you don't get to go, well, I didn't break that many. Well, the one you broke matters and you're going to answer for it. And if there's a penalty attached to it, you're going to serve it. It's the same way with the law of God, even more so. Even more so, because he doesn't miss anything. So, he says, no, here's the thing. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Do I need to say that again? Listen. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Four. The righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean? The righteous come to life. The the righteous experience Zoe life, salvation, not by following the law, not by works. The righteous experience life by putting their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and in the cross. That's how they experience salvation. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So, this is like a... As you read the New Testament and you you just hear these things over and over, what happens is the layers are peeled off in your understanding of what the, what the cross really meant for you. And the more you understand what the cross is, the more you understand that it really is a free gift that's not earned. And if it's a free gift that's not earned, we have to get out of this performance-based work mentality like I'm, like I'm working somehow to earn that or to deserve that. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. It's a free gift. And actually, the way that you live as a Christian, the way that you live in that Zoe life, he says, is daily 
by faith. See, it takes faith to believe. No, I feel this way, but by faith I believe I'm righteous in God. I feel this. I feel condemned. I feel dirty. I feel worthless. However, my faith is not in my works. My faith is in the blood of Jesus Christ, and my faith is in the cross. That's the kind of faith he's talking about when he says the just shall live by faith. He's saying don't ever slip back into, if you read the whole book of Galatians, don't ever slip back into this works-based mentality where every day you're living, trying to, trying to do right and live holy so that you can get saved. I live every day trying to live holy. Don't make a mistake that. But it's not so that I, I don't feel like my salvation is attached to that. My salvation comes by believing in what Jesus did on the cross. And out of gratefulness and thankfulness for that, I live a holy life every day for God. Out of thankfulness and appreciation for that and out of love for Him. Amen.